a pretty exciting time. Uh, I love uh, the holiday season, I really do, but by the end of it, I don't know about you, I'm really ready to get back to the normal rhythms of life. And this is uh, the first officially unofficial day that that happens. The 14th of the month, the second Sunday, is typically when everybody's uh, clocks are reset. But in light of that, we are going to start pushing the dial up a little bit this week. And so we just wrapped up, I hope you're aware of this, the first official week of the new year. And as you know, the first few weeks of January always cause, uh, it's, it's a homogenous wave that sort of sweeps through our culture. People start thinking about the future. In particular, the whole New Year's resolution sort of thing. And it's been interesting. Uh, this past couple of weeks, I've gotten tons of articles. I read all kinds of stuff all across the board. And there's been an interesting theme in all of the New Year's resolution ideas. It doesn't matter what uh, periodical or publication you went to, they were all addressing the idea of anxiety. That seemed to be like the number one thing. Like, 2018's coming, how do you enter it without being anxious? And that's sort of an interesting theme because this past year we spent a great amount of time talking about Jesus' peace and his joy in our hearts. And we'll address some of that here this morning. Uh, my talk today is not necessarily about dealing with anxiety, but I sort of want to bring to the forefront of this that while we live in this world where everybody's thinking about the future, connected to the future with some people is this extreme anxiety. So people make these resolutions. They try to figure out how to stave off the anxiety by determining what they're going to do to make their lives better. And I don't know why this is the case around New Year's, because I want you to think about this, right? January 1st is really no different a day than any other day in the calendar year. But for some reason, there's like a sociology in our world that causes people to hit this life reset button. It causes us to evaluate the past and to think about how we want to be different in the future. And so during these next weeks, perhaps more than any other, life changes on everybody's mind. That is just the way that it is. It is likely on your mind. In light of that, last week, as is our church tradition, we prayed the new year in together. We go through the ACTS paradigm. We corporately pray in the new year together. Today, we're going to continue the theme of prayer. We want to sort of pass the baton as we've talked about what it means to pray together as a body for each other and our world and God's mission, God's vitality in our body and in our personal lives, our church body. Today we want to move towards personal prayer, meaning how is it that you can continue to pray when you leave this room? And then in the following weeks we'll talk about action, because remember prayer is something that matters deeply to God, but our words have to be matched with our deeds. That is the Christian way. And so we had a pretty powerful worship gathering last week. It was encouraging to hear from all of you about the way God moved. And I want to pray that God continues to do that in these next weeks. And so today we add something to this teaching that we've been talking about, this idea of praying in the new year, by looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And this teaching is a great one for this week, because through it, if you will let God, he will challenge you to think about where your heart is when it comes to your relationship with him. It's a place in Ephesians, and if you read the Apostle Paul, you'll notice that these words are synonymous, meaning he writes like this in other places of the Scripture. But I think this is a pretty potent place where he talks about this idea of praying, uh, praying, our, praying our faith into existence, praying God's greatness and his goodness and his glory into our lives in a way that is unrivaled. He talks about this fullness of life. He talks about what it means to have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a place in Ephesians where Paul gives us this Christian set of New Year resolutions to help us experience God's presence in our lives. And this is what I want to talk about today. And so with that in mind, as we move now from the holiday of New Year's into the actual New Year, I want to challenge each of us to pray and act with the same healthy sense of urgency in 2018 in our own lives that the Apostle Paul sort of lays out for us in this passage. And we're going to talk about two critical things this morning. 
Two things that Paul teaches us here in the scripture. And they all revolve around the way we pray. And so if we're serious about following Christ in the new year, if we're serious about growing in Jesus, it is critical that we make sure we have a healthy prayer life that determines our actions. And what I want to point out before we even get into the truths I want to share with this morning is that these are not just ideas Paul communicates to us. These are practices that are present in his own life. In other words, it's not just the idea of the praying element of it. That's a super important part of it. There's, a, there's prayer met with action in everything he does. And this really leads me to the, the first thing I want to share with you this morning. So we talk about how to pray our new year in. I want to ask you to make this to you. You pray that God creates a desire in you to embrace spiritual discipline. And by spiritual discipline, we'll unpack this here in a moment. I simply mean understanding the ways and the rhythms that God desires for you and I to pursue him. Those are disciplines. Historically, that's what we've called them in the Christian faith. And Paul lays out a critical one through a handful of words in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 17. And I will read to you just this one section I want to talk about right now. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Before we get into all the greatness that's about to happen in Ephesians, Paul opens this section of teaching by telling us he is praying for something critical. And here Paul gives us an invaluable insight into why he had such a strong faith in Jesus. What you'll find, what we're about to talk about, this, this DNA, this discipline DNA, if you look at the great men and women of God in the Scripture, outside of the Scripture, the people who have shaped you in your lives, those you are shaping, these disciplines are present in their lives. There's an invaluable insight found in verse 14, in the verb he uses in verse 14. And what he says is, I kneel, which is obviously a reference to the priority he placed on the spiritual discipline of prayer. Now, this is really important to note in a passage like this because it is very easy for our hearts, keep in mind, in an action-oriented world, to just want to get to the promises of God. Meaning, Paul says we're praying about stuff, and then stuff starts happening. That's what he says here. I'm giving you the, you know, the 10 cent paraphrase here. And I think for us in this world, because we're in such an instant gratification culture, it's very easy to just skip the foundational ideas in this passage and get to all the amazing promises. In other words, we want the payday. We want the promises to be fulfilled, but we have to connect the dots that oftentimes those promises are fulfilled when we are devoutly pursuing God. When we say things like being rooted in his love, this is what Paul's saying, living in his strength and power, being filled with Jesus, right? Those are all amazing things that Paul promises us, but we have to be careful to not read those promises while totally glossing over the prerequisite way Paul says God will help to bring about them in our lives. To, to, to bring experience to our lives. It's by regularly praying for them. Remember, Christianity is more than just a, an academic exercise. It's more than just a mental pursuit of who Jesus is. Those things matter, but they are meant to reshape our hearts, redefine our lives. There is an experience connected to Christianity, and that experience is rooted in a relationship of deeply knowing Jesus. And so herein lies one of the secrets, and I want to use that as sort of a, a playful word this morning. That isn't supposed to be a secret when it comes to having a rich, dynamic, meaningful relationship with God. It's sort of like a little-known secret that shouldn't be a little-known secret. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read about Paul, I find him to be one of the most encouraging and discouraging people in the whole Bible. Okay? Uh, some of you are laughing probably because you agree or you're like, where's he going with this? But I'm going to get that in a minute, I promise. He's encouraging because while he wasn't perfect, right, if you've read his, his epistles, he seemed to always have his stuff together. 
went through incredible hardship, but he was, he was able to live his faith out in the world, in a world that was at times not good or kind to him. He always had this amazing hope in Jesus that steadied him no matter how crazy life got. And this is also what can be so frustrating about him because it's real easy to, in a naive way, just read about him and see a guy in the Bible who was always able to achieve the hope, comfort, and peace in Christ that we all want. That's not always the case with him, though. He, he had challenges and issues just like us because he was a human just like us. And so this begs an interesting question, okay? He does seem to be able to find peace in very challenging circumstances. And for me, the question that I want to have answered is, why is this the case with a guy like this? Why, is, why are these disciplines so, so necessary in the lives of the men and women that faithfully serve God, even during challenging circumstances in life? Why is this so important to talk about this on the, the, the dawn of a new year? What's so special about him that he can live like this? Well, the interesting thing about verses like this is they teach us there's really nothing special about Paul. He's a great man, don't get me wrong, but there's nothing like super special about him. There's nothing in him that he had that we don't have in Christ. Rather, he understands something very, very critically, that Christianity is a faith that requires spiritual discipline. It's a faith that requires us to make an investment at times in our lives. And I shared with you many years ago the first time this investment was presented to me. Became a Christian in my mid-20s, and a few years, about a year or so into becoming a Christian, I moved to New Orleans to pursue my studies and served in student pastorate out there and also as a senior pastor. And I'll never forget, in my first class, the first time that this was sort of made known to me, the little secret that shouldn't be a secret, it was during my first year in seminary, in a mandatory class that every incoming student was made to take their first semester. And the class was entitled, The Spiritual Disciplines. It wasn't very creative, but it was very powerful. The premise of the class was a bit of a shock to me. Because even though I had been a Christian at that point, I'm enrolled in school now, it's about 18 months, that was the first time I had ever heard the words Christianity and discipline used in the same sentence. And the way this class was presented was that these are foundational realities in the life of the Christian faith. Yet, I wondered why I had not heard this before. This goes back to that discipling reality we talk about. We are to pass on these ideas and truths to everybody that cares for Jesus. We are to share these truths with those who don't know Jesus. Our ability to embrace the disciplines and pass them on is really only as good as our ability to know what they are. And so in this case, I was benevolently ignorant of what they were. And I started asking myself questions, saying things like, you know, it seemed a little bit too long to have just started hearing about this, especially like, does every person have to go away to seminary to learn about the spiritual disciplines? Is that the way it works in God's economy? Not supposed to be. In the class, a professor assigned us a book, and anytime I reference this book, I encourage you to read it, and I want to do the same this morning. The book is called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and it's by an author named Donald Whitney. And I have it in a very special place on my bookshelf. The book dedicated a chapter to each of the most crucial Christian disciplines. This is a limited list, but this will give you the gist of what the book was communicating. It includes practices like reading the Bible. That's a discipline. We talk about gospel vitality. That's one of our vision statement ideas. Gospel, community, and mission. The truth of Jesus, gospel. We know that by being in the Bible. It talked about the importance of praying. It talked about the importance of understanding and participating in worship. Worship is one form of the way we express community before God. It talked about evangelism, mission, of a high value at our church, the desire, the, the, the compulsion, if you will, to know that God has pursued us and redeemed us. And we should have the same compulsion to see other men and women know Jesus. 
It talked about financial generosity, which matters in our church family, but exceeds the boundaries of our church family. I say this much like our time in worship. Worship happens in this room. Generosity happens in this room, but it can't only happen in this room. There are no boundaries to the places that God desires us to be generous with our time and our energy and our efforts and our monies. It talked about the discipline of fasting. It talked about the discipline of learning. I was having my mind blown as I was working through all of this. The book was truly revolutionary for me because up until that point, I thought faith was just a gift that God gave me to satisfy my life needs. And don't get me wrong, faith is some of that. Faith is God giving us what we need to have a meaningful life on this earth. But that is not the only reason God offers us faith in Jesus. I didn't even know what a Christian discipline was at that moment in my life, let alone that they biblically and historically are the primary way that God chooses to bring about Christ-centered growth and maturity in his people. And that's where my mind began to bend. And so it didn't take long for me to find the thesis of the book. It's laid out in the second page of the book. And the author, Mr. Whitney, says this. I'll read it to you. When, when framing the concept of the Christian disciplines, he says, Christians have been redeemed to pursue a life of godliness. In other words, we've been redeemed for a purpose, to become more like our Father in heaven. The spiritual disciplines are the God-given means we are to use in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness. And I love the fact that there's this counterbalance statement here where it's talking about something we must do in the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot pursue God without his Son or his Spirit. Yet we also cannot just think that because God has given us his Son and his Spirit that faith happens like through osmosis, that if you lay your head on the Bible, you become more like Jesus. You don't have to read it or engage in it. You don't have to bring your prayers before God or labor with other men and women who love Christ. There's this interesting balance he lays out here. And then he goes on to say, godly people are disciplined people. And this is my favorite statement in the whole quote. It has always been so. It has always been so. When we look at a guy like Paul, what we're seeing is some of the so. When you think of the men and women who have invested in your life, the people who you see as heroes in their own right in your faith, it is because this was so for them. They loved God deeply, and they lived their life in light of that. And then in his book, he goes on to give an extensive list of people, both in the scripture, we're looking at one today, Paul, and people in church history throughout the, the course of the movement of God in the world, and certainly in his own life, who fit this bill. An understanding, a pursuit of discipline. Discipline meaning like, not, not a word where that's a hardship, but a genuine desire to want to know God the way he has given us the ability to know him. Now, what's interesting about this is that it, it is fair to say in a room this size, and we have people that are not here today, and we have people that will meet in community groups this week, if you think about the whole of our body, it is fair to say that in our family and in the lives of the people that you know, some people, maybe even you this morning, might be in the same boat I was in prior to taking that class. Maybe you're here saying like spiritual disciplines, I never even heard of that, or I thought I knew what those were, but uh, I don't really understand how they helped me grow in Jesus, or I sort of know what they are, but my life's just too busy to embrace them. Wherever we're at, it's interesting. People are usually at different places in their faith when it comes to this. And it's not, that's not a bad thing, because we're always at different places in our faith. But when God brings us to common places, we should ask whether or not we should take the next step. And the next step is if you recognize that there's a, a lack of this in your life this morning, to frame your life in such a way that you begin to embrace this. And it's interesting that we, we live in a Christian culture. Here's why I think this is a bit of a problem, why the disciplines are a challenge for some people today. We live in a Christian culture that seems to be growing in their appetite to be spiritual. 
This is true even in the the non-Christian world. Spirituality is an important thing for people today. But both inside the Christian camp at times, it's not necessarily in their desire to discipline their lives for the sake of godliness through the, the key disciplines. Meaning, we want some type of spiritual connection with God in a very loosey-goosey way. But we don't necessarily want to be spiritually connected to God in the ways that he desires us to be connected to him. Rooted and anchored. Unassailable in our understanding, uh, in, in, his, in his work in our lives. We look at our lives and we basically say, man, something's happening in me because I'm anchored deeply in Jesus. That requires a different type of pursuit of God. And I'll share with you some of the critical sows, if you will, that we see in the great men and women of God. They have a study habit for scripture. There's a faithful pursuit of the Jesus of the Bible. There is a genuine desire to worship God in community with the church family. To worship God in this time we have during teaching and song. To worship God in our relationships with people. To actually invest in people. Those are all forms of worship. The great men and women of God engage in mission. Meaning they desire not just to hoard up the common grace God shows us through his son. The good grace he shows us. But we want to show it to other people. They have a meaningful prayer life. They really do. They, they recognize that while God has called us to row our boats on this earth, the ultimate direction of our vessels are steered by him. And so we, we strike sometimes an odd balance, if you will, a balance that might even be somewhat confusing. Like, how is it that God sort of directs our steps but we're responsible for what we do? I'm telling you, I can't fully explain that, but I believe it to be true. And so we need to take ownership of our lives, but trust that God is a good God directing our lives. There's a peace in that. Now, there are other spiritual disciplines, that's for sure. But the Bible is clear that out of those, our pursuit of gospel, our love for community, and our desire to to share the name of Jesus in our world, it is out of those three disciplines, gospel, community, and mission, that all the other disciplines flow out of. You can't live in light of the name of Jesus if you don't know his truth. You can't value people if you don't care for community. And you certainly can't see people experience the grace God has shown you in your own life if you don't understand what it means to share that grace with others. And so in general, the scripture, that big fat book we, we challenge each other to read it each week and grow in, it's a book largely concerned with leading us to experience Jesus' fullness in our lives. And these three disciplines are mentioned quite a bit. Here in particular, Paul says something to us, and this is true of many of the great next steps, if you will, in the Christian faith. The degree to which you and I can experience a promise from God, in this case, fullness, maturity, peace, joy, love, it's directly connected to how much of a priority you make the spiritual disciplines a part of your life. That's true, and I, I think this is true for every, every great gift God gives us. Man, you can't fully experience grace or share grace with somebody until you've experienced it on your own. When you truly understand what God's grace means in your life, that starts bending your mind and your heart in a way where it sort of becomes somewhat compulsory to share it. Or when you really say things like, man, God took my sin on the cross for me. He died for me. That changes the way you start understanding where people are coming from who are far from God. Our experience with God very much so shapes our ability to experience God. And so here's the point in what I'm trying to say here. When you are a faithful student of the disciplines, when you practice them, when scripture study and worship and community matters to you, I'm not even saying being perfect in these areas. I'm just saying beginning the pursuit in them. What we begin to do, the analogy I like to use is we create this fertile soil in our hearts for God's life-changing grace to grow in. We cannot produce growth in us. The Bible's clear about that. 
but we can tend the soil of our hearts for God to work in. That we are responsible for. And those nutrients accelerate God's ability to grow himself in us, to grow us in Christ-like maturity. And this really should be the, the desire of every believer. So if you're here today saying, I read those articles about anxiety and I don't want to be anxious, that's my New Year's resolution. I want you to have a bigger resolution. I want you to ask the question like, what if I pursued Jesus robustly and lived in his presence? What would that do about my anxiety? What would that do about my stresses or my troubles? What would that do maybe in the areas where I need some humility? Wherever it is. Don't, don't settle for a New Year's resolution about a symptom. Settle for the source of all, all reconciliation, all healing. Settle for that. Settle for God's goodness in your life through the Son, through Jesus. One amen to that. I'm going home. <laughs> I'm going home. If I was reading the Book of Mormon, you'd be yelling at me, all right? <clears throat> So listen, if you sit here today having recognized that you're neglecting the disciplines, don't take this as, as hardness. That's not my intention here. If you know me, you know me well enough to know that's never my tone. Take heart this morning. No, there's no judgment in this. Rather, a heartfelt concern to call you back to this. Me too. We're in the same boat. This is a we idea here. To ask for God's grace and to move our hearts to want to practice these disciplines. Start the new year like this. Start the new year by simply reading something in your Bible. In my community group about three, I guess three months ago, give or take a little bit, we challenged each group to start reading through the, the Bible app to read the verse of the day. That was an incredible thing that has been pretty awesome to see in our group. We started with something modest and God can do amazing things through modest goals. Make it a priority to read something in the Bible. Start with a verse or a chapter, wherever you're at. Make it a priority to worship God. I mean worship him here in this room and outside of this room. Make it a priority to get engaged in somebody's life, to make an investment in somebody and have them make an investment in you. Make it a priority to start praying about the men and women in your life who are far from God, whom God has specifically put you in their life for. Pray that God would increase your appetite for him because when you do, something amazing can happen. You will find that when you make it a priority to be in God's presence, he has a very distinct habit of being in yours. That's the way that it works. And this really leads me to the second prayer request that I want to share with you this morning for the new year. It is directly connected to the first. Paul tells us, listen, if we pray, critical discipline, uh, something can happen. In other words, there is an action point even in our own lives and the way God works in us. He says, we should make this the year. This is literally his prayer. Make this the year that you pray that God helps you to grasp the riches of the love of Jesus. In other words, don't just pray about the love of Jesus. Don't just pray about you growing in your desire to, to grow in Jesus. Ask God to help you understand the depths of what that actually means, the riches of his love. That's the promise portion of what we read here in Ephesians. I'll read to you where we get this from, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. It'll be behind me. Paul goes on to say, and I pray that you, in other words, it's like this litany of prayer requests. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so Paul gives us another specific thing to pray for here. His second prayer for us is found in verse 17, where he asks us, he asks God to root and establish us in his love. That's how you deal with the symptoms of the new year. That's how you victoriously address a new year. You are rooted in something that is more powerful than the year. Now, hopefully the language the Bible uses here to describe the effect Jesus' love should have in our lives 
will cause us to rethink just how deeply we're supposed to understand and experience his love in our lives. Paul's prayer is that we are rooted in the love of Jesus. Because many Christians, unfortunately, live worshiping what appears to be a very small Jesus. We, we know he's supposed to be a big God, but we live as if he is a very small God. We believe that he is somewhere in our lives or we have tucked him away deep into the recesses of our hearts. We know he's in there. We know that he is also out there. And at times we might even really believe he's here with us. But those powerful moments, maybe they're, they're far more rare than you hope them to be or than you even want them to be. Maybe here your body and your soul are willing, but, but there's just no ability to sense this. And that's why this passage also gives us a promise to claim. There's a gospel truth in it worth claiming and asking God to make a reality in our lives. As we enter the new year, because it's challenging those of us that have domesticated Jesus in our lives like this to unleash him. Uh, God is an untamed God. And in a lot of sectors of our world, he has been domesticated. But I'm telling you, God bows to no man or woman. God is God. He is, he is an uncaged God who moves in the ways that he desires, who works in the ways that he knows are for the good of his kingdom and, and, and us. That's a great promise that God is constantly working on our behalf to bring us uh, more into the, the fashion and the shape of Jesus. And so what if this year we said, you know, God is not a God who is tameable. What if we asked God to unleash himself in us? What if we asked God to move in our hearts? What if we asked God to say, if we said something like, God, help me to recognize what it means to truly have the presence of your son Jesus living at the epicenter of my soul and my heart. What does it mean to say, according to the scripture, after Jesus left this earth, resurrected in heaven, you are present in every believer, alive today. He's in us. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, Jesus is sitting in you right now. His presence indwells you. It's the spirit indwells you. What if we sort of ask God to, to move in that way? What if we ask God to give us strength based on that reality? to shape our life based on those promises, not our problems, to refashion every fiber of our being in accordance to that truth, that the love of Jesus Paul prays for us to experience and be rooted in is living in us right now. And his Holy Spirit is guiding our steps so that we never stray from it. What if we ask God to make known the truths of his gospel in ways that we have never felt or experienced before so that we can pursue the path of godliness and be incredible agents for change, ambassadors for Jesus this upcoming year? That's what some of rooting into the love of Jesus will bring about in our lives. And in scripture, experience the love of Christ, or experiencing the love of Christ, can take many forms. But here it means, specifically, Paul says, love is, it equates to power. It means we're living in God's power. That's a mark of his love. And this is important to know, because as you well know, each new year, there are certain to be new blessings to give thanks for, and there are guaranteed to be new challenges you will have to rely on God's strength to overcome. And I would imagine that a great many of you at this very moment already know what some of those challenges are. You didn't just wake up and say, it's 2018, what am I going to do? That's probably not what your, your uh, New Year's Eve looked like. You probably already have a gauge to a certain degree on what's going on in your life and the lives of the people you care about. You already know to a certain degree some of the challenges you're going to face in the workplace, in your school, in your families in your personal life. We've got a room full of pastors this morning here too, in your churches. The question for many of us isn't necessarily what's ahead of us. You know, that's all in our iPhones. We've got that figured out. It's rather how are we going to deal with what's ahead of us. So right now, we have some options, two in particular, 
It's how we deal with those things. You can release Jesus' love in your life. You can rest in that promise. You can let the promises of God's goodness and grace shape you. Or you can let your heart be ruled by fear and doubt, the unknown. Let me put this choice to you another way. This is sort of the choice I leave you every Easter. Let's say I sat you down and I gave you the Christian quiz. I just basically was checking the tenets of your theology about how God has worked in the world. And in particular, how Jesus' love accomplished on the cross for you, everything we're about to talk about. If you've been in the scripture or been in the faith for some time, the answers to these questions are going to be very clear immediately. And I want to share, ask them to you now. Don't, you know, don't scream out loud, but just think in your heart here for a moment. If I were to say to you, do you believe God is real and that he loves you? A person who has known God would say yes. If I were to say, do you believe Jesus is God in the flesh and came to earth because he loves you? You would hopefully say yes, because we sweated a lot to make that Christmas service happen, right? Yes, I believe in that. We just celebrated that. Do you believe, next, next major Christian epoch, do you believe he died for your sins, restoring you to God? Of course, that's why we celebrate Easter. Do you believe he did that in a way no person could? Because of his love for you. Of course I believe that. It's the foundation of my faith. Do you believe that after he died for you, he resurrected himself? He proved that he was God. That death was his footstool. Do you believe he created heaven and earth? That there was no power on this earth in life or death that could hold him down? Absolutely. Those are great promises. I've read them and I believe them. Absolutely. Every sane Christian would say they affirm that. Now here's where this gets a little tricky. I want you to kind of data bank those answers for a moment. And in light of all that stuff, we believe about God's love in our lives in Jesus. Let me ask you a few more questions. And through them, this is where I want us to see the logical disconnect at times. And it's a disconnect we all suffer from when we talk about Christ's power presently in our personal lives. Do you believe that same Jesus can heal your heart right now of the emotional hurt you're facing? I don't know. It's been a really rough week, challenging week, couple of, challenging couple of years. I know he overcame the grave, but I'm not sure he can bring me peace. Can that same Jesus help you to deal with the difficult relationship you're in? Oh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I've been asking God forever. I don't know what's going on there. Can he be your source of stability in a job market, especially in our county, that's somewhat unstable, right? Well, probably not. Like, I, I know he parted the Red Sea and he dealt with my sin on the cross, but I'm not sure that he can, he can show me work. I don't know that he can do that. Or can, can he be your rudder as you navigate the waters of physical illness? We just talked about God being the creator of the, bo- the mind and the body, created it all. Yet we, we are fearful of trusting in him when it comes to our, our physical health. No way. I don't know that he can do that. Can he, can he be your peace if your savings account isn't where it should be, where you hoped it to be at this stage in life? Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I went to BB&T and asked for a Jesus loan. They wouldn't give me one. I don't know, right? I don't know. Don't try that. It's really be a bad, bad gig for you. Look, when you compare Jesus' love and his resurrection and his power for you against the challenges of your life side by side on paper, it really is no contest. I'm not, I'm not removing the emotional stresses, the spiritual, the physical stresses connected to these things. I know they are real. I go through them too. I'm just asking you to ask whether or not you want to rest in the stresses or you want to rest in the power of the one who can deal with the stresses. Jesus is a guaranteed first-round knockout in these issues. And he can navigate us through them while we still have an abundant and full life in him. The truth is, whenever we speak about power, Jesus' presence in our life, the promises he gives us, there is nothing in the world that can take those things from us. But we, we can become the type of people who cede defeat to them. We can give those things up. But Jesus' joy and peace and promises and his hope are unassailable. They cannot be penetrated because he is God. 
And in between those two poles exists our lives. And it's why we need to pray. Because Paul's point here is when a person truly grasps Christ's love in their hearts, when they are rooted in the way Paul speaks of here, they are very likely to genuinely experience the movement of God in their life, the untamed God, the God that starts doing powerful things, amazing things. And by powerful, I don't even necessarily mean they are sensational. They might be very mundane in the economy of the world, but they are not mundane to us because it is the reality of God in our lives. In the Bible, God's love, I want to I take a moment to talk about love, at least from this angle. There's much I can say about love, and I don't have time to address it all. But here in Scripture, God's love is used both as a noun and a verb. And in one sense, it describes a posture God has towards us. But in another sense, it describes the way God was compelled to act on our behalf. It was because of his great love for us that he sent Jesus to the cross for us. And so a proper understanding of biblical love which is a very confused idea in our world today, doesn't start separating God into multiple pieces to to fashion God's love in our image. Whenever we speak about love, we are trying to seamlessly marry these ideas together. So we have a full, a, a whole council understanding, if you will, of God's love. And here, something interesting is happening. And what this means for your life and for our church in this new year, and I'll be a little more detailed about this in the, new, in the, the weeks that follow when it comes to our church, It's that wherever God's love is present, it it causes amazing things to happen in the lives of people and in the places where we live. So as we enter 2018, I hope you deeply believe God's love wants to move in you. It does. When Paul prays that we would pray that God's love roots in us, he's doing this for a reason. He wants us to experience the power and the presence of God. And there are two very brief but profound ways that I believe God wants to move in you and I and and our church this year. The first is one we have touched on already. It's in your own life. This is a sermon for our church family, but what constitutes our church family is we as individuals. And together is that beautiful unity and diversity that we read about in Ephesians 4. God is speaking to us, but God is also speaking to you. God is also speaking to me. And this is one of the great promises of the Bible, that God wants to move and work in our lives. That to know Christ's love comes with this this promise of being transformed by God's love, of being remade into the powerful image of Jesus, of pursuing godliness. That's what what Paul's prayer is here. And when we do that, I won't rehash this because we talked about it over the Christmas season, but we get to dwell in this unrivaled fellowship with God, this koinonia love, this koinonia relationship, where God is, is at our table and we are at God's table. It's that type of relationship, that last supper, no pun intended relationship. That's the type of presence God wants in our lives. He wants access to it all. And when we connect with that, it creates this ground for a fullness of life that promises us nothing short of the full presence of God. God doesn't want a time card in our lives. He he wants to be the clock that defines our lives, that shapes our thoughts and our actions. And I love how Colossians 2, 9 through 10 puts this. It will be behind me here. I want to read it to you. There Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Christ. Christ in us, us in Christ. He is now the head over everything. At least he's supposed to be. Theologically that's true. Functionally that's not how we often live our lives. But if we want this type of promise to be fulfilled in our lives, we have to marry those ideas. And what's great about this is that this fullness of life is readily available to any person who wants it. 
It's, it's connected to a peace and confidence that allows us to replace all those no's we just talked about a minute ago. These I'm not sure's, how can Jesus fill in the blank in my life? That's going to change some stuff. We might have more faith in areas where we need it. We might have more yeses and absolutely's in the places we expect God to work and the places we've been asking God to work. If you want this type of life, you have to start tending the soil of your heart today. You have to remember that it's only brought about by the great farmer, our Father in heaven. And so to experience this type of fullness in life, it is promised without question, but it is not automatic. I'm not saying God can't bring it about, but I'm not sure God desires to bring about himself in our lives without us. It sort of defeats the purpose of loving God well. This type of, this type of pursuit of God requires a deep trust in him. It, it requires a desire to invest in our own faith, the disciplines, by pursuing God. And so if you want God to move in your life this year, and I pray you do, because remember, if God moves in our body, it's because he's moved in our lives. These two things are inseparable. We are the body. That's what I'm going to talk about next week. You're probably saying, good, I got the sermon now. Don't show up. <laughs> Please show up. God wants to move in your life, but I sort of want to leave you with this. God doesn't only want to move in your life. God also wants to move in the life of our church and then the life of every man and woman who loves Jesus living on the earth right now. So if you're asking how I got this idea from a passage like this, let me answer. Uh, the book of Ephesians, much like Paul's other epistles, are entirely focused on how God wants us to experience fullness in life. I've already said that. But he's writing these letters to churches. Remember, uh, all, of these church, all of these epistles are written to bodies of Christians worshiping in different parts of the world. And so all of his epistles, you can, you can sort of give the, the ten cent thesis of what he's trying to communicate. They are big teachings, lots of details, but they are big teachings explaining to us how we grow in the measure of Christ's fullness together as a family, as a church. And we have a very high value. We place a high value on the church here. We believe it is the agent of God's grace in this world. God has chosen to work through men and women called the church until his return. That's the way he set it up. And that's why we have such a high value. And we place such a high value in these things. It's not a hobby. It's actually God's hands and feet in the world. And so this is why Paul prays for us in verse 18 to experience Christ's power together with all of the Lord's people. In other words, he's saying, you experience God's love with all of God's people. It's a sharp reminder that we can never disconnect God's promises to us as individuals from the larger body of his church. It's a, it's a dual promise, you might say. Christianity is all about being in a community of people, a community of faith lived out between us and God, us and each other. And this distinction is an important one because it's the difference between us leaving today and spending these next weeks together, believing that, knowing confidently, I hope you walk out of here saying, God is deeply concerned about my life in the new year. God is deeply concerned about me becoming more like Jesus in the new year. I want you to leave knowing that confidently. But I also want you to know that he is not only concerned about your life or my life in the new year. He wants to work simultaneously in our lives for the sake of other people, for each other, through our church family, to bring about his promises in the lives of people who are without them in our city. That is the subject of our Vision Provision series. God wants to work in your life, but not just your life. So as we close this morning and take another step in the new year, all the science says in a week, everybody will forget their resolutions and be anxious again. I've read, I've read 10 articles this week about that. The second week of January is like where all of the lofty goals we've had fall away and we realize like, oh man, it's just been rough again. And then we read all those articles about anxiety. As we move past the holiday of New Year's, the holiday season into this second week of January, 
where for many of us, resolutions become distant memories, I want you to ask yourself if you've, if you've made the most important resolution. And know that you don't just make this resolution. You make this resolution with the full force and authority and presence of your God behind it. God wants you to pursue him more than you want to pursue him. So ask yourself, have you really experienced the depths of Jesus' love in your heart? Are you rooted in the love of God like Paul prays for us here? Ask yourself if you're pursuing godliness through the disciplines of the faith. If you're not in Christ, ask yourself, why not? If you're here today saying, man, this love stuff's amazing, but like I don't even know who Jesus is or I got tons of questions about that. Let's try to answer some of those questions because God's love, power, and peace are waiting for you. The question then becomes, why are you waiting? What are you waiting for? Why are you waiting on them? They're already offered to you. They're already offered to me. So as we think about our lives, as we think about the future of our church, I'm convinced now more than ever, God started a good work here eight years ago. And in some senses, it's beginning again. There is much he has done, much he is doing, and much I believe with all my being he wants to continue to do through us. It's truly my prayer that this day, you would take a next step with Jesus by connecting to him for the first time, by connecting to the church family more deeply, by seeing the church as a forged family meant to bring about the common grace of God, not a hobby or an affinity, by committing to serve in the work of the ministry and mission, by recognizing the power of God in you is meant to change the world in front of you. Ask yourself, am I supporting God with my life? Am I supporting what he has called me to do, what he has set me apart to do with my time, with my talents, with my treasures? In 2018, as you pray, labor, and give, I want you to ask God to, I want you to ask God this, and I want you to partner with me in this. Let's pray and believe what God says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. This is how Paul ends this, this section we've talked about. He says, now to him, we pray to God, we recognize his promises, and then he closes it with, with reminding us who is able to do what we pray for. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I love that part of that verse. It's like God's imagination is just bigger than ours, even what we ask for. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. And so the idea behind that is what we ask for, we ultimately ask for it because it honors Christ. That's the type of prayer life God wants us to have. And I think when we pray robustly to pursue Jesus and honor Jesus and to live like Jesus, what happens is certainly the nature of our prayers will change, guaranteed, but also the ability to God, for God to move in our lives will increase. And that promise is as true for your life as it is mine, as it is for our church. Whatever we're asking God to do, especially when we ask for the things that honor him, we should expect him to do more than what we even thought he could do. As we enter 2018, let's pray diligently uh, for God to bring that promise about in our own lives, individually and as a church family. And let's be willing to let him use our lives to accomplish them both. So as we move into our response time, these next couple of quiet moments you have to really solidify what God has said to you this morning and to, to make an action plan in light of it. I challenge you to ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you this morning about the new year, about the second week of January? And what is it you will do about it when you leave this room? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for a teaching that, that is encouraging. Thank you for a teaching that reminds us of your ability to work in our lives in the world. Thank you for teaching that reminds us that what you ask us to pray for, you, you never ask us to pray for these things in isolation. You've given us the power of your Trinity, your Father, your Son, and your Spirit. You've given us other men and women, God, 
who are on the same pursuit of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that the full complement of the heavens you have given us to make these things a reality in our lives, we would take advantage of them. May we never forget that you are with us, that your power is in us, and that because of that, we are able to live lives confidently in the image of your son, Jesus. And I pray today that no matter how we have entered this room, that we would leave it with a, with a more full and deep grasp of the rootedness, God, that you desire us to have in you. It is our prayer this morning that we would take these next moments we have with each other and just ask you to very clearly show us where we are or are not with you. And in your grace, God, lead us to the place that you want us to be. We take steps in life, that's for sure, but we know you direct our paths. And I pray, God, that you would marry those two truths this morning in our own lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.